Well, good morning. My name is Steve Blummer. I'm the pastor of family and adults here at Hope Chapel. It's my privilege to speak with you this week and next week as many of Hope Chapelers are traveling around the world on some mission trips. We have people in Uganda and Rwanda, Dominican Republic, and a place called The City, which is a Muslim city in the 1040 window. So we're praying for them as they are encouraging other believers around the world, as well as being encouraged in what God is doing in different places. In preparation for our time this week and next week, I began to think about all the great verses that are found in the Bible. There are some that are the most recognized, like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We memorize those verses because they have such great truths in them. We also memorize some because they're short, like John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. I like the short ones because they're easy to memorize. And even the short ones pack some great truths in them. We just think about that one. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. A man, the Son of God, Wept. That tells a lot about our God, a God that is filled with empathy and sympathy and compassion, who understands what we feel. And as a man, it's telling us that it's okay to cry. It's okay to be moved by emotion. And when we look at the story in which this tiny verse is located, we further understand the depth of these two words. You know, memorizing verses from the Bible is wonderful. And we should be constantly putting God's word to memory. We sometimes take it for granted that we have access to God's word in our phones or in our tablets. Or even in front of us at church, there's a Bible in the chair. And many of us have many copies of God's word sitting at home. So it's important for us to, to memorize God's word so we can pull it up whenever we need it. But we also need to understand the context in which the verses that we memorize where they come from. For example, many people know Jeremiah 29, verse 11, that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Those are great encouraging words. But do you know the context of this verse? Do you know the context of the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a prophet that no one really listened to. They threw him in prison because they didn't like anything he had to say. His message was about God's judgment on the nation of Judah because they had turned their backs on God. They were sinning against him. The book of Jeremiah talks about this plan of judgment and being taken away to another country because of their sinful actions. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet because of his persistent message of judgment and repentance. And when you read the other book that he wrote, the book of Lamentations, you see the outcome of his judgment. The first two verses says, how she, this is Jerusalem, sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow. The princess among the provinces have been put to forced labor. She weeps aloud during the night with tears on her cheeks. There is no one to offer her comfort not one from all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. 
So no doubt Jeremiah's full message is not one that is encouraging. It's not comforting. Jeremiah does weave in the truth of God's love and his concern for the nation. God wants them to return to him. And then he would restore and bring healing to the hurting people. We like that God does not leave them in their despair. That's why we memorize this verse. Because it reassures us that God has not forgotten about us. But do we stop and think, why are we in the place that we are? And I'm not saying bad things happen because you're sinning. But we don't often like to think that perhaps the problems that we are in are partially due to our own making and that God is somehow not pleased by everything we do. Sure, God loves us. But that doesn't mean that he's in love with every choice that we make. And the choices that we make could bring us down some unpleasant paths. So maybe we don't need just to hold on and wait for God's plan to come about. Maybe we need to first seek some repentance and seek his righteousness in our lives first. So when I thought about all these verses that I have memorized, that you have memorized, there is quite a few that came to my mind that come from a small chapter in a small book in the New Testament. I want us to embrace these well-known verses, and I also want us to get a hold of the context so that when we memorize these verses, we have a deeper understanding of these verses to which I believe it gives us a better stickiness when we apply them to our lives. So if you would, if you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, it's towards the end of the Bible, a small, small book. I'm going to be reading from the Holden Christian Standard Version. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to talk about a few things in it. So follow along with me, Philippians chapter 4. So then, in this way, or in this manner, in this attitude, Paul is referring back to chapter 3, where he says that we need to eagerly wait for the return of Jesus Christ. We need to think about how we spend our time. We don't need to think about what we should have or could have or would have done in the past. We need to press forward towards the future and do the things that we can perhaps win a prize and reward from God for doing what He wants us to do. So it's in this way, my dearly loved brothers, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Uadiah and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have renewed your care for me. 
You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. And you, Philippians, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no one shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, a welcome sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those from Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now we're going to take this week and next week to unpack the truths from this chapter. The book of Philippians is often called the book of joy because the word joy is referred to into it 16 times. The two main focuses for us as we talk about joy are going to be that joy is to be found in Christ. Christ needs to be our center. Secondly, which we'll get into next week, will be that our joy is also to be found in the church. That's going to be an exciting one to talk about. You know, we certainly understand that Jesus is supposed to be involved because we're at church and that's what we do. But finding joy in the church, um, you may say, I've got a few things to say about that one. Maybe not so much. And we'll get into that this week, next week. This week, we need to start about finding our joy in Christ because I believe that if we haven't found joy in Christ, we're not probably going to find joy in the church. We're just going to end up finding the division, the disagreements, and the disappointments. So I've basically taken chapter 4, and with each verse, I've labeled it either joy in Christ or joy in the church. So let's take a look at the first verse that talks about joy in Christ, and that's verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is Paul's ultimate focus. He wants his readers to rejoice. He's telling them, stop being sad and don't even be sad for me. He's telling them to turn that frown upside down and just smile. Now, if someone tells you to smile or to rejoice, my assumption is that you're not smiling. If you've ever taken someone's photo you've probably had to tell them smile because they're not smiling. My wife was a photographer for a few years, and Bob St. Jean here at Hope Chapel could tell you story after story of trying to get people to smile for the camera. And I'm not sure why they say smile for the camera because they're really supposed to be smiling for mom who just wants one good picture. And then when you finally get the kids to smile after they've stopped crying because mom and dad has been yelling at them for a while to just sit still and smile, they give you that fake smile, right? 
Paul's not telling us to fake it until we make it even. He's not telling us just to act happy as though there's, you could be in denial of what's going on. He's telling us to be happy. He tells us that we have a choice in the matter, as though we can decide if we're going to rejoice or not rejoice in whatever is happening. This isn't just trying to cover up our problems. This is replacing them. The word rejoice here is used to describe the state of being happy. It was used to describe the feeling that the father felt when the prodigal son returned home. There was some excitement that suddenly filled the father as he saw his son coming up the driveway. It was used to describe the feeling that the wise men felt after they had seen the star that guided them to meet the baby Jesus. They were ecstatic and amazed at what they had just experienced. It was also used to describe the feeling that the chief priest felt when Judas agreed to betray Jesus and help them capture him. See, for them, their plans were finally going to work out. You know, they often say that happiness is not joy because happiness has to do with our happenings. And so when the happenings go away, so does the happiness. I think that's only half true. I mean, these people rejoice because something good came their way. And that's the same word that Paul uses here to tell us to be happy, to be in the state of happiness in the Lord, as though something good has came your way. Joy is having the perspective that sees good has come your way, even in the midst of something bad. The reason that you can rejoice is because your focus is in the Lord and on His guidance and His power and in His understanding and His love, rather than in what looks like a big problem in front of us. This, as you know, is not an easy thing to do. We sometimes enjoy living in our own pity party as well. And oftentimes there's a lot, enough grief in our lives to keep the party going for a long time. Now, I'm going to admit that I'm not very good at this either. I can easily find myself in a complaining mood. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand those who seem to be smiling all the time. And when you talk to these people and ask them, how are you smiling? They say things, things like, you know what, I've done all the crying and complaining, and in the end, there's nothing to do but laugh. Or I've tried kicking and screaming, but no one was listening anyways. The more you talk to them, the more they tell you of their sufferings and trials and heartaches and troubles. These people aren't free from problems. These people don't have it all together and figured out. These people don't have everything going for them. They rejoice because, well, they've learned how to see things differently. That is what Paul is saying. See, Philippians is one of the four prison epistles, meaning that Paul wrote it while he was in prison. He wrote the books of Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon also from prison. So we begin to get a glimpse of what's going on with Paul when he wrote these words. By the time we get to Philippians chapter 4, Paul has been through a lot of punishment, a lot of persecution. He was near death several times. He even talks about it in chapter 1, how there were these people who were mocking him in prison about how he preached Jesus Christ. He said that some pre preached Christ out of envy or jealousy, and some preached Christ just to get under his skin, to provoke him. If you would turn over a couple pages to chapter 1, we'll see in verses 12 through 19 his response to this situation. 
Verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. Those do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, in this, in my situation, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul had a smile on his face even when things were negative, even when things were happening to him externally bad. Internally, he kept his focus on God and the good things that God was creating in the midst of what seemed to be bad. He saw that other Christians around him were being inspired by his attitude. He saw that more and more people began to know that he was identified with Christ. You and I need to be a little more proud that people know that we have a relationship with Jesus and that we go to church. Paul saw that more and more people began to hear about who Christ is and what he had done. It says that every officer and every prisoner knew about Paul, and more importantly, they knew about Jesus. He also believed that all of this publicity would lead toward his release from prison. Paul had hope for the future, even when it looked like he had nothing else because he had chosen to already see the positive over the negative. And this is the attitude we see from Paul in chapter 4. He would remain joyful because his joy was in the Lord. He could remain confident because his confidence was in the Lord. It wasn't in something that could change. It wasn't in someone who could let him down. He could remain hopeful because his hope was in Christ. You know, whatever happened, as long as he was doing what he was supposed to, whatever happened was what God wanted to happen. Jesus Christ was his everything. And even if he was going to suffer for Christ, that was going to be such an honor and such a privilege. He was glad and excited to be identified with Christ who suffered. Because when Christ suffered, it produced an eternal salvation for Paul. And what could be better than that? Nothing is better than that. And so that's why he says in verse 6, don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. These are the verses that I love. These are the verses that I said over and over when I left my ch last church job and I found myself in grief and some post-traumatic stress and high blood pressure and, and anxiety. I would preach to myself and I would recite these verses. Paul says, don't worry about anything. 
And again, that wasn't easy for Paul to say. He had plenty to be worried about. He's writing from prison. He wanted to get out. He wanted to start churches. He wanted to encourage the believers. And he was there not because he did something wrong, but simply because he taught people about Jesus. He was actually thrown in prison earlier in the city of Philippi where this letter was written simply for casting out a demon in a fortune teller. And that story is found in Acts chapter 16. Some translations have verse 6 as, be anxious for nothing. And in the popular Disney language, Paul would say, let it go. The word anxious or worry here carries the idea of tearing one's brain apart with your thoughts or to be killed by one's mind, or to be in pain by thinking. I think that's the perfect description of worry and anxiety. We're crippled by our thoughts, whether they are legitimate or not. See, I'm no doctor, but I'm told that when we have fear or worry, that our brain actually begins to shut down because it needs to send more oxygen to our organs because we are in need to either fight or flight. It's in those circumstances of worry, anxiety, that your body says, I don't need to be processing information. What I need to do is I need to react. Your body reacts and tries to turn your brain off. And that, of course, doesn't help because now we're thinking, why is my blood pressure rising? Why am I beginning to sweat? And we begin to worry that we're worrying. And Paul is saying, stop it. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. There's nothing that's worth thinking about it over and over because you can't change it by thinking. Jesus says that in Luke chapter 2, that no one is able to increase their lifespan simply by thinking about it. Or as the verse literally says, who could add a cubit to their height with their thoughts? You can't become taller just by thinking about it. Sorry to tell you. I remember trying this as a kid, closing my eyes and thinking, I could get taller. Just think about it. I'm taller. Now I'm taller, right? And I wasn't. Anyways, Paul is saying, stop working yourself up. You do what you can do, and then you take the rest to the guy that can make a difference, God. Pray about it. Ask him. Keep going to him as many times as it takes and ask with thanksgiving go back to that rejoicing part recognize what God has already done in you and through you and with you and for you give him the praise and then it's this peace of God which we've talked about during the Christmas series this peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus I love that part because isn't it our heart and our mind that's affected by anxiety and worry? We can take a deep sigh of relief. Clear our minds a little bit. And Paul says, then think on these things. Think on things that are true. Think on things that are honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and awesome and anything that would give you a shout of, yeah, that's awesome, amen. Dwell on those things. Listen, your mind is never going to be empty in spite of what your spouse may think. You're going to have thoughts. And Paul's saying it's up to you what kind of thoughts you have. 
As we move through this chapter, we're kind of at the pinnacle of the whole chapter, the most recited verse in our day, I believe, verse 13, that says, I can do all things through him that strengthens me. This is probably the most recited verse out of context, I believe. This verse doesn't tell a football player that he can win the championship game because Jesus will give him strength. This verse doesn't tell your bad knee that it's okay to run a marathon because in the midst, Jesus will give you the strength to run it. And I'm not denying the supernatural work of God, nor am I denying the power of prayer, but that's not what this verse is all about. We need to read the context. Verses 11 and 12. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Paul says that he has the strength, the power, the ability to deal with all situations because it's Christ that gives him that strength, the power, the ability that makes people wonder, how in the world is he doing that? That confidence that he has in Christ leads to contentment. Contentment. Has that ever even been a goal of ours? You know, we can read all sorts of books about being successful and how we can get the most out of our time so that we can meet more people and be more productive and make more money. But when's the last time you sat down and read a book or searched the bookstore for a book on how to be better at being content. Paul has figured out this secret, this mystery of being happy, of being joyful, of rejoicing, of having a smile on your face when the circumstances aren't really good. He is able to not allow his situation to get the best of him because he completely trusts that God has him exactly where God wants him to be. If God wanted him to have more, He knows that God would give him more. Jesus says that God already knows what we need before we ask it. So if we don't have it, there must be a good reason that God hasn't given it to us. Our happiness cannot come from anything but in Jesus Christ alone. Our happiness can't come from what we get out of this world. What would it do for you if you were even able to gain the whole world and get everything you want? but then lose your own soul in eternal hell. What good would that stuff do you? Nothing. So stop worrying about acquiring those things. You can have the ability, the power to handle whatever situation you find yourself in because you are located in Christ. Jesus is the center of your motivation, your goal, and your thoughts. Whether you are in abundance or whether you have very little. We need to keep our eyes upon Jesus. So Paul gets towards the end of this chapter. Verse 19 and 20 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen simply means it's true. It's a strong affirmation that you believe what is said to be solid, without argument, full of evidence. He's saying this is true. It is my God, not just a God, 
some impersonal creator, but my God, the powerful creator has a personal meaning. Not that we personally possess him as though we can control him, but that we have allowed him to control us. We are connected personally to the one that has all things and that can do all things. He is my God. He can be your God. It is him who gets our glory, our attention, our view. He is where we find our joy. Now, I'm sure you can say, Steve, that sounds all great and wonderful, but how in the world do we actually do this? Well, it's not easy. Nor do I think that we could do it perfectly. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get frustrated. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get overwhelmed. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad day. But it means that your, your life as a whole should not be characterized by these negative attitudes and behaviors. And it's why we have the church. It's why we have each other, which we'll get into next week. What you and I need to do is that we need to be more conscious of our emotions and attitudes and thoughts. We need to recognize when we aren't rejoicing. We need to get a hold of ourselves. We need to get a hold of our thoughts and tell ourselves, whoa, whoa, slow down. What's really going on? Why are you not rejoicing? We need to figure out what we want so bad at the moment that we're not getting. What have we made our goal? What is our motivation during this time? This will require you to ask these hard kind of questions, either in the moment or maybe during your journaling time or as you talk it out with a friend. Sometimes as you talk it out, you begin to see and connect the dots. We need to figure out where are we trying to put our joy, our satisfaction? Probably it's not in Jesus. And then we need to spend some time in prayer, even right there in the moment. Maybe a time of repentance for having such thoughts and goals. Spend some time in prayer asking God, man, God, I need you to help me through this difficult decision, through this situation. I need you to help me see the good that you're working through these bad times. And then we need to fill our mind with good thoughts. Think about the time that God came through for you before. You know, this isn't going to eliminate all of our anxious thoughts and all of our worries right away. It may take some time and some hard work to get through these thought patterns. For many of us, we've lived so many years responding and reacting through a perhaps not so healthy cycle of thinking. You may even need to get some outside help through a counselor or talk to your physician. But what I know is God's word tells us to rejoice always. And if it wasn't possible, I don't think God would have said it. So that is our goal, to rejoice in the Lord always, to find our joy in Christ. And again, I say, rejoice. So let us pray. God, it is not easy for us to rejoice always. And there are going to become things in our life that can discourage us, that can get us down. And we should grieve 
over those. We shouldn't deny that they're happening in our lives, but we should look at them with lenses that says, God, you are doing something good in the midst of this. You can bring good our way. So allow us and help us to have that mindset, to have our joy in you, to have our hope in you. And God, help us to know that we can't do that alone. That's why we have each other. That's why we have the church. As we talk about that next week, it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.